1: From the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. We have done it. We have reached the final episode of the telling of the story of Big Buddy and Victor Frankenstein, his creator... His tormentor, they torment each other, there we are, there they are, I guess, circling each other in a vortex of doom, and one of them has now finally expired. Victor Frankenstein has met his maker, the irradiation of a gentle smile passing away from his lips in his final moments. They're on Walton's ship. Well, this ship is about to dock, folks. We're about to cast anchor here because this is the final episode. And what a journey it's been. You know, we started off there with uh, Walton talking to Mrs. Savile, Gone from England to Switzerland to Russia to, I don't know, France and Italy and the Arctic. I mean, we really covered some miles, folks. Geographically, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Like, we've just been rung through the ringer. Rung through the ringer? That's not an expression, is it? Rung through the ringer. I don't know. I mean, what else do you do with a ringer except ring things out with it? As for me, you know, I've covered some miles, too. I've gone from Connecticut down to Savannah, Georgia. I was just back in Connecticut, now I'm back in Georgia by way of Richmond, Virginia. I'm going to Canada next week. All kinds of stuff happening. But first we have to finish the story. I mean, we've we've got mere pages left. Scraps of paper between my fingers, just the tiniest amount left. And why not Frankenstein is dead. Walton is concluding his tale. As I said, the irradiation of a gentle smile passed away from his lips. In the last episode, I complained that that gentle smile, I feel, has been unearned. He didn't earn that gentle smile or its irradiated nature. His life was too tormented for that. And I don't really feel like he learned his lesson even in his final moments. But that's a quibble. So back to the book, volume three, chapter seven of Frankenstein. (laughs) Margaret, what comment can I make on the untimely extinction of this glorious spirit? Does not seem untimely to me. Seems in fact overdue. I'm just going to editorialize here a little bit. Seems like, you know what? He had it coming. He's dead. I'm fine that he's dead. What can I say that will enable you to understand the depth of my sorrow? All that I should express would be inadequate and feeble. My tears flow. My mind is overshadowed by a cloud of disappointment. But I journey towards England, and I may there find consolation. I am interrupted. What do these sounds portend? It is midnight. The breeze blows fairly, and the watch on deck scarcely stir. Again, there is a sound as of a human voice, but hoarser. It comes from the cabin, where the remains of Frankenstein still lie. I must arise and examine. Good night, my sister. Well, I think we can guess, can't we? I think we can guess what hoarser version of a human voice is there in the cabin of Frankenstein. Big Buddy has come to pay his respects. We were hoping for a kind of final showdown between Victor Frankenstein and the Damon, but instead it looks as though Big Buddy and Walton may come face to face. And that's cool. I'm down, I'm definitely down with that. Like, I want to know, are they going to fight? Are they going to chit-chat? Are they going to make out? They're probably not going to make out, you guys. Michael, grow up. It was immature, but it'd be cool if they did. But they're not, they're not going to make out. Okay, so night, my sister. And then, new paragraph, great God. What a scene has just taken place. I am yet dizzy with the remembrance of it. I hardly know whether I shall have the power to detail it, yet the tale which I have recorded would be incomplete without this final and wonderful catastrophe. And I'm guessing wonderful he's using, not in the sense that we use it, but in the sense, you know, full of wonder, Uh, probably not good wonder, bad wonder. I entered the cabin where lay the remains of my ill-fated and admirable friend. Over him hung a form which I cannot find words to describe, gigantic in stature, yet uncouth and distorted in its proportions. As he hung over the coffin, his face was concealed by long locks of ragged hair, but one vast hand was extended, in color and apparent texture like that of a mummy, When he heard the sound of my approach, he ceased to utter exclamations of grief and horror and sprung towards the window. Never did I behold a vision so horrible as his face of such loathsome yet appalling hideousness. I shut my eyes involuntarily and endeavored to recollect what were my duties with regard to this destroyer. I called on him to stay. Okay, so... This is maybe, I feel like, a more complete physical description of Big Buddy than we have yet received. I feel like I'm able to envision better the Big Buddy than ever I was before. Uncouth and distorted in its proportions. That's that's a new detail. Distorted in its proportions. Because I feel like before... Uh, my, my feeling was, oh, he's probably proportional, you know, his features are probably like, you know, proportional to the size of his body, but now I'm picturing something different, you know, like sometimes you see people with like a pituitary gland issue and they're in you know, they get really big and their features look kind of weird because, you know, they grow and they look kind of out of proportion. Like I'm, I'm picturing that now. I mean, that doesn't cause particular hideousness. But maybe you combine that with the texture, uh, skin texture of a mummy, you know, maybe, and then a vision so horrible as his face of such loathsome yet appalling hideousness. Now he doesn't go into much description there about what that means exactly. To me, the fact that he's a little ashy, you know, a little eczema on, this, on the on the skin, maybe that contributes. Maybe a little shea butter would have cleared that up for him. So he wouldn't have looked so mummified, that probably would have helped. You know? Maybe get out in the sun a little bit. I mean, he's been out in the sun, I guess. He's been running all over the globe. Seems like he would have gotten a little bit of color in his cheeks. But let's just take him at his word. Appalling hideousness. But that and the physical description aside, what I like here, my favorite part of this paragraph is the description of utter exclamations of grief and horror big buddy is in mourning he is mourning his creator and that's as it should be i feel like not because victor frankenstein earned that but because victor frank because victor frankenstein did create this big buddy and ended up rejecting him and turning his back on him and turning him into the daemon, right? So if there's grief there in horror, what I mean is as it should be, I mean in, in a storytelling sense, because I think we all know that big buddy has been stringing him along this whole time. Big buddy wanted him alive. Big buddy wanted that connection to humanity his only real connection to humanity, even if Victor Frankenstein rejected him. And Victor Frankenstein needed Big Buddy. They needed each other. The act of creation created something new. So, you know, Frankenstein created the thing, and in a sense, the thing created Victor Frankenstein. But what also was created was this deep, codependent, shitty, abusive relationship that both of them kind of needed. And they were going to play it out. And then Victor Frankenstein did the great discourtesy of dying. Well, no wonder he's in grief. No wonder there's horror. No wonder. He's upset. You know, now what's he going to do? He's up there in the Arctic, you know, he's got his sledge, he's got his... probably some dogs or something, but, you know, what's he going to do with his time? Can't retire. He hasn't paid any money into Social Security, what's he going to do? So, Walton calls on him to stay. He paused, looking on me with wonder. And, again, turning towards the lifeless form of his creator. He seemed to forget my presence, and every feature and gesture seemed instigated by the wildest rage of some uncontrollable passion. That is also my victim, he exclaimed. In his murder, my crimes are consummated. The miserable series of my being is wound to its close. O Frankenstein, generous and self-devoted being, What does it avail that I now ask thee to pardon me? I, who irretrievably destroyed thee by destroying all thou lovest. Alas, he is cold. He cannot answer me. So Big Buddy's now asking for Frankenstein's pardon. He calls him generous. A self-devoted being. What does it avail that I now ask thee to pardon me? I who irretrievably destroyed thee. Yes, you did. By destroying all thou lovest. And now, he says at the beginning of the paragraph, you are also my victim. I murdered and murdered and murdered some more. I killed out of revenge. And now that you're dead, all I want is your forgiveness. All I want is to say, hey man, I'm sorry. And I want you to pardon me. But you're cold. You cannot answer me. His voice seemed suffocated. And my first impulses, which had suggested to me the duty of obeying the dying request of my friend in destroying his enemy, were now suspended by a mixture of curiosity and compassion. I approached this tremendous being I dared not again raise my eyes to his face. There was something so scaring and unearthly in his ugliness. I attempted to speak, but the words died away on my lips. The monster continued to utter wild and incoherent self-reproaches. At length, I gathered resolution to address him in a pause of the tempest of his passion. So what is Walton going to say to Big Buddy? What's he going to say to the monster? And I feel like I could be wrong, and if I am, I apologize, but that is a word we have heard very rarely in this book, the word monster. I feel like it's the first time we're hearing it when describing Big Buddy. I could be wrong, and if I am, so be it, but I think it's worth noting that when we think of Frankenstein, the first word we think of in the common vernacular, I think, is monster. You know, we, we, he gets lumped in with all the other, you know, monsters of the era, the werewolves and the Draculas and whatever else, whatever dumbass monsters there are, you know, that they've tried to make movies about. But we think monster, and here Walton describes him as such. What's he going to say? We'll find out, in a moment, on Obscurity.
0: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: to Big Buddy, Into to our knowledge, nobody has had a regular conversation with, as he calls him, the monster, uh, with the full knowledge of who and what he is. The closest we came was the old man, right up there in the mountains where he was hanging out in the hovel, spying on these people for like a year and bringing them firewood. And he finally, you know, approached the old man and talked to him and had a regular conversation, but the old man didn't know that he was talking to a monster. But Walton knows. Walton knows everything. So what's he going to say, you know? All right, here it comes. This is Walton speaking. Your repentance, I said, is now superfluous. If you had listened to the voice of conscience and heeded the stings of remorse... Before you had urged your diabolical vengeance to this extremity, Frankenstein would yet have lived. So he's upbraiding him a little bit. He's chiding him. He's saying, hey, big buddy, you know, day late and a dollar short, kid. He's dead now. It's not going to do you a lot of good to come here and say I'm sorry when you killed him. You just said you killed him. And now you're coming and saying I'm sorry? You dragged him to the ends of the earth. You dragged him up here, the ice. He almost drowned, he almost died, and I recovered. He would have been dead already for weeks if it hadn't been for me. You could have saved him at any time. You always knew where he was. You always knew what was going on. What'd you do? You dithered. You piddled. And now he's dead. You could have come here at any time and said, Hey, man. Hey, bro. I'm sorry. Pals? And I don't know if Frankenstein would have accepted my guess is not. But it's a little late. And do you dream? Said the daemon. Do you think that I was then dead to agony and remorse? He, he continued, pointing to the corpse, he suffered, not in the consummation of the deed. Oh, not the ten-thousandth portion of the anguish that was mine during the lingering detail of its execution. A frightful selfishness hurried me on while my heart was poisoned with remorse." Think you that the groans of Clerval were music to my ears? My heart was fashioned to be susceptible of love and sympathy, and when wrenched by misery to vice and hatred, it did not endure the violence of the change without torture, such as you cannot even imagine. So he's he's saying, (laughs) he's saying, you think it was hard for... Victor Frankenstein, when I killed all those people, well, what about me? I felt terrible about it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an unexpected twist here. When I was strangling Clerval, do you think I enjoyed it? No, I didn't like doing that. You know, I'm a, I'm a big softy. I might not look it, but I'm just a big softy. And when I strangled Clerval, I felt lousy about it. Ugh. Boy, did I kick myself in the, in the pants when I did that. Jeez, talk about a goof! I made a goof, but he was—he was stirred on by this relentless hatred, this desire for vengeance. Both of them have expressed remorse. Frankenstein on his deathbed, and now Big Buddy, lingering over the corpse of his creator, they have both expressed remorse about their actions towards the other. This back to the book. After the murder of Clerval, I returned to Switzerland heartbroken and overcome, I pitied Frankenstein. My pity amounted to horror. I abhorred myself. But when I discovered that he, the author at once of my existence and of its unspeakable torments, dared to hope for happiness, that while he accumulated wretchedness and despair upon me, He sought his own enjoyment in feelings and passions, from the indulgence of which I was forever barred. Then impotent envy and bitter indignation filled me with an insatiable thirst for vengeance. I recollected my threat and resolved that it should be accomplished. I knew that I was preparing for myself a deadly torture, but I was the slave. Not the master of an impulse, which I detested, yet could not disobey. Yet when she died, nay, then I was not miserable. I had cast off all feeling, subdued all anguish, to riot in the excess of my despair. Evil thenceforth became my good. Okay, so then we have a footnote. Haven't had a footnote in a while. Evil thenceforth became my good. Let's go to the back. Let's go to the videotape and look for footnotes. Hold on. Oh, that's from, uh, it's from Milton. Paradise Lost, Volume 4. Evil be thou my good. So, you know, we're going back to Milton here. All right. Urged thus far, I had no choice but to adapt my nature to an element which I had willingly chosen. The completion of my demoniacal design became an insatiable passion. And now it is ended. There is my last victim. You know, you want to feel bad for the guy, you know? And I do, you know? I've all, look, I've always been on Big Buddy's side this whole time. I've made no bones about it. I prefer Big Buddy to Victor Frankenstein. But this kind of woe is me thing where he's saying, you know, I did it, but I felt terrible about it. I've suffered worse than Frankenstein over it. You know, that's, uh, you know, it's kind of softening my opinion a little bit on uh, on Big Buddy. My sympathies for him are weakening just a touch here. Because you you may have felt bad. Okay, all right. You know, you, you killed Clerval. You didn't like it, but you did it. But then to go, I suffered 10,000 times more than Frankenstein over it. Yeah, kid, I don't know, you know. And then, look, I understand petty envy. Believe me, nobody understands petty envy better than me. I understand bitter indignation. Sure, don't we all? Does it fill me with an insatiable thirst for vengeance? Not really, you know? I mean, you had vowed to do it. You had vowed to kill poor Elizabeth, right? And then, But then you killed Clerval, and you felt terrible about it. And then you were kind of like, eh, maybe I won't. But then the fact that Frankenstein was ready to move on and get married, you were like, ah, not so fast, bro. Not so fast. If I can't be happy with a a she-Frankenstein, with a she-buddy, then you can't be happy either. I get it. I mean, I guess I get it. But I feel like you could have let it go, you know? I was at first touched by the expressions of his misery, yet when I called to mind what Frankenstein had said of his powers of eloquence and persuasion, and when I again cast my eyes on the lifeless form of my friend, indignation was rekindled within me. Wretch, I said, it is well that you come here to whine over the desolation that you have made. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. He's whining. He's being a little whiny baby. You being a little goo goo baby, big buddy. You throw a torch into a pile of buildings and when they are consumed, you sit among the ruins and lament the fall. Hypocritical fiend. If he whom you mourn still lived, still would he be the object again? Would he become the prey of your accursed vengeance? It is not pity that you feel. You lament only because the victim of your malignity is withdrawn from your power. Well, well said, Walton. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm thinking, you know? Enough of this emo shit it's fine for, for Victor Frankenstein to be all good Charlotte. You don't wear it as well, bro. You don't wear it well. You're a death metal kid. You're, you dress in black, you got the hair over your face. It's all anger and anguish and murder and brutality. When you gaze down at your shoes and try to play those love songs, it just, the, the notes ring false. Oh, it is not thus, not thus, interrupted the being. Yet such must be the impression conveyed to you by what appears to be the purport of my actions. Yet I seek not a fellow feeling in my misery. No sympathy may I ever find. When I first sought it, it was the love of virtue, the feelings of happiness and affection with which my whole being overflowed, that I wished to be participated, but now... That virtue has become to me a shadow, and that happiness and affection are turned into bitter and loathing despair. In what should I seek for sympathy? I am content to suffer alone, while my sufferings shall endure. When I die, I am well satisfied that abhorrence and opprobrium should load my memory. Once there's a motorcycle going by, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about living in the big city. You know, motor, a constant stream of motorcycles, always going by Hell's Angels on Parade in Savannah. You know, all the time. No, that's not true at all. In fact, rarely do I hear motorcycles. But one of the reasons I moved from New York City years ago, and this may sound trivial to you, but it drove me crazy, was my apartment was on the 26th floor. Every night you would hear Motorcycles going by on 2nd Avenue, and their reverberations echoing up the building sides into my bedroom window. It would drive me nuts. Superbikes going by at 3 o'clock in the morning. I hated it. Noise pollution. I hated it. Quiet in Savannah. That's one good thing about it. It's a quiet town, which I like. Once my fancy was soothed with dreams of virtue, of fame and of enjoyment. Once I falsely hoped to meet with beings who, pardoning my outward form, would love me for the excellent qualities which I was capable of unfolding. I was nourished with high thoughts of honor and devotion. But now crime has degraded me beneath the meanest animal. No guilt, no mischief, no malignity, no misery can be found comparable to mine. When I run over the frightful catalog of my sins, I cannot believe that I am the same creature whose thoughts were once filled with sublime and transcendent visions of the beauty and the majesty of goodness, but it is even so. The fallen angel becomes a malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had friends and associates in his desolation. I am alone." And that's the real crime here. Ultimately, that is the crime of the book Frankenstein, the crime of loneliness. Nothing else, really. Yes, murder. Okay, fine, murder. If you want to call murder a crime. But it is, these are all crimes born by loneliness and despair. And that's why we root for Big Buddy, because we know his heart. And what's crazy is we know his heart because the story of his heart was related to Victor Frankenstein. Big Buddy told Frankenstein, and Frankenstein told Walton, and Walton is telling Saville, and Saville is telling us. But we know Frankenstein's heart, I mean Big Buddy's heart, and yet Frankenstein, in his telling of the tale, could not see past the wretchedness of the creature, could not seek his own repentance, Big Buddy, ultimately, is the bigger man, literally and metaphorically. Yeah, he's being a little whiny baby here, but ultimately, Big Buddy is the better man. You, who call Frankenstein your friend, seem to have a knowledge of my crimes and his misfortunes. But in the detail which he gave you of them, he could not sum up the hours and months of misery which I endured, wasting in impotent passions. For while I destroyed his hopes, I did not satisfy my own desires. They were forever ardent and craving. Still I desired love and fellowship, and I was still spurned. Was there no injustice in this? Am I to be thought the only criminal when all humankind sinned against me? Why do you not hate Felix, who drove his friend from the door with contumely—I don't know what contumely is, and I'm not going to look it up—why do you not execrate the rustic who sought to destroy the savior of his child? Nay, these are virtuous and immaculate beings. I, the miserable and the abandoned, am in abortion to be spurned at and kicked and trampled on, even now, my blood boils at the recollection of this injustice. But it is true that I am a wretch. I have murdered the lovely and the helpless. I have strangled the innocent as they slept and grasped to death his throat who never injured me or any other living thing. Poor Henry, I guess. I have devoted my creator the select specimen of all that is worthy of love and admiration among men to misery. I have pursued him even to that irremediable ruin, irremediable, unable to be remedied, ruin. There he lies, white and cold in death. You hate me. But your abhorrence cannot equal that with which I regard myself. I look on the hands which executed the deed. I think on the heart in which the imagination of it it was conceived. Let me say that again, Robin. I think on the heart in which the imagination of it was conceived. And long for the moment when these hands will meet my eyes. When that imagination will haunt my thoughts no more. Fear not that I shall be the instrument of future mischief. My work is nearly complete. Neither yours nor any man's death is needed to consummate the series of my being and accomplish that which must be done, but it requires my own. Do not think that I shall be slow to perform this sacrifice. I shall quit your vessel on the ice raft which brought me thither and shall seek the most northern extremity of the globe. I shall collect my funeral pile, and consume to ashes this miserable frame, that its remains may afford no light to any curious and unhallowed wretch who would create such another as I have been. I shall die. I shall no longer feel the agonies which now consume me, or be the prey of feelings unsatisfied yet unquenched. He is dead who called me into being, and when I shall be no more, the very remembrance of us both will speedily vanish. I shall no longer see the sun or stars or feel the winds play on my cheeks. Light, feeling, and sense will pass away, and in this condition must I find my happiness. Some years ago, when the images which this world affords first opened upon me, when I felt the cheering warmth of summer, and heard the rustling of the leaves and the warbling of the birds, and these were all to me. I should have wept to die. Now it is my only consolation. Polluted by crimes, and torn by the bitterest remorse, where can I find rest but in death? Farewell. I leave you, and in you the last of humankind whom these eyes will ever behold. Farewell, Frankenstein. If thou wert yet alive, and yet cherished a desire of revenge against me, it would be better satiated in my life than in my destruction. But it was not so. Thou didst seek my extinction, that I might not cause greater wretchedness. And if yet, in some mode unknown to me, thou hadst not ceased to think and feel, thou wouldst not desire against me a vengeance greater than that which I feel, blasted as thou wert, my agony was still superior to thine, for the bitter string, for the bitter sting of remorse will not cease to rankle in my wounds until death shall close them for ever. But soon, he cried, with sad and solemn enthusiasm, I shall die. And what I now feel be no longer felt. Soon these burning miseries will be extinct. I shall ascend my funeral pile triumphantly and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. The light of that conflagration will fade away. My ashes will be swept into the sea by the winds. My spirit will sleep in peace, or if it thinks, it will surely, it will, or if it thinks, it will not surely think thus. Farewell. He sprung from the cabin window as he said this, upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel. He was soon borne away by the waves, and lost in darkness and distance. The End Well, I'm just absorbing that and feeling somewhat, and you're going to be mad at me, disappointed. Somewhat disappointed by that ending. Because again, again, for the final time, the action, the ultimate action is happening off stage. Big Buddy is commencing himself to a funeral pile of his own making but we don't get to be there to witness it he's describing what will happen but but we don't get to see it happen we don't get to be there when it happens we don't get to have the satisfaction of big buddy and victor frankenstein dueling it out wrestling in the mud giving each other uppercuts and roundhouse kicks and wrestling around you know I don't like the way Frankenstein died. I'm not thrilled with what Big Buddy is doing. I mean, yes, there's a certain finality to it. You, you know, he goes, "All right, Frankenstein is dead. My mission is over. Now I must die." You know, it's a little bit like Rector Howard at the end of uh, of uh, uh, Blade Runner, very much actually, like Rector Howard at the end of Blade Runner, where he's, you know, up there with uh, Harrison Ford on the rooftop, and he's saying, "I was." Made and I have committed terrible crimes, but I have seen beauty. The, and, and, he, and, you know, I've seen the third moon of Alderaan or whatever the hell he says. Nah, and then he said, and, and he, ha- he saved Harrison Ford, who he was trying to kill, and Harrison Ford was trying to kill him, you know? And then he says, time to die, and he dies. And we see it, and we see it through Harrison Ford's eyes, and we see the mystery of spirit go out of those eyes. And we understand him a little bit better, and we understand this character. And, you know, the whole, the whole Rutger Hauer monologue is about, I don't know, what, five sentences or something? And here we got pages and pages of uh, Big Buddy basically saying the same thing. Now it is time to die. And we see it through Walton's eyes, and Walton has been our faithful narrator, you know, from the beginning, but it is not quite the same you know, there, there there's just architectural problems with this novel that cannot be overcome because of the epistolary nature of it, the letter writing and such. Had the whole book just sort of been in the third person, or maybe just in Frankenstein's voice, it would have been better. And if Frankenstein and Big Buddy had had that Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer moment on the top of the apartment building at the end, I feel like we would have had a better ending here. But it's just... There's, it just feels like there's loose strands here. There's just a couple of strands that never quite get tied together. And we're left with Walton, who we don't give a shit about, you know? We're left with Walton sailing back to England with his merry band of sailors and his sister. And he is there in, as he described, wonder, a state of wonderment. He'll be thinking about this for the rest of his days, no doubt. But we don't necessarily want to follow Walton for the rest of his days. I mean, I'm okay. I guess, look, I'm okay with Walton being the final witness to this. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with Walton being the one left to report the story, to, you know, go into town and tell everybody what he saw. But it still feels... uh, It still feels a little bit shabby. Eloquent as hell. Don't get me wrong. Mary Shelley, eloquent as hell. And the the book always illuminates for me when Big Buddy talks. Frankenstein may have been complicated and flawed, but Big Buddy is of a whole other order. You know, he's beautiful in a way that Victor Frankenstein was not. And, you know, we're sad to see him go because there could be a sequel, you know? big buddy builds a fortress of solitude up there in in the Arctic. It'd be great, you know? Solves crimes. He turns his remorse into heroics. Flies around the world, you know? Shooting lasers out of his eyes. Defeating bad guys. Could have been great. But I guess I believe him when he says he's going to light himself on fire up there at the North Pole. The North Pole that Walton was striving to find and could not we feel pretty certain that Big Buddy is going to get there without much of a problem. And all the fame that would have been afforded to Walton will go instead to somebody else, even though it is Big Buddy who will be the first to reach that point on the globe. <sighs> so, yeah, the book is over. Big Buddy is ice rafting north to his death, Walton is sailing south, Victor Frankenstein in his crypt. And my dog Oli has just settled at my feet here in the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah. He entered with a sigh and laid himself down. And that is as good a cue as any to close this book and to contemplate the uh, relationship between creator created and what do we owe to that which we bring into this world so we will continue at some point we will do something new something fun but that will have to wait and i will see you again on another intrepid Episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only... Well, you'll be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them. But you'll also get bonus episodes of uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty. And if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com Michael Ian Black.